Hey friends, Ashton here. Welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. I'm super grateful today uh, to have someone joining us for the second time. His work in the world has been um, so refreshing for me, enlightening, uh, life-giving, uh, Beauty Will Save the World was one of the first books I started of his, uh, and then Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God absolutely was uh, something I needed just at the right moment. He's got a new book that's coming out called When Everything's on Fire, and for those of y'all that know Brian Zond, um, he's a beautiful soul that brings a much-needed uh, uh, view to the tradition and faith uh, for those of us that say we follow Jesus. And um, I'm just super grateful to get to share some time with him and have some of his wisdom with us here today. So, Brian, thanks so much for joining us again. Well, Ashton, thank you. That was a very generous introduction. I appreciate that. It's good to be with you. <laughs> well, it's true. Uh, and I have, uh, you have been so monumental in my life of um, clarifying so much that I knew was true in my bones, and you gave it, you gave it words, and uh, I'm forever grateful for that. Maybe for some of our folks that are new here and they weren't uh, here at the podcast the first time you came on, when you introduce yourself and your work in the world, where do you begin? <laughs> I don't know. I, I am a Jesus freak that is uh, still a Jesus freak after all these years. Uh, the first Sunday in November... My wife and I will have been leading Word of Life Church for 40 years. The wow. church will celebrate its 40th anniversary. So in one way, in one sense, I've kind of done one thing, and that is I've been dedicated to this local church. Lately, I've been saying I've pastored one church for 40 years, though many congregations, because <laughs> that's kind of the way it is, you know. Yeah. Uh, so so anyway, yeah, so for 40 years, I've been pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Over the last 12 years, I've also given quite a bit of time to writing. I mean, I've written 10 books in 12 years, and so generally you call those people authors, <laughs> So I have that side, too. And uh, I don't know if, you know, I, certainly I couldn't have done that 20 years ago, just the way my life was arranged. And I don't think it would have been a good idea to attempt it. But I'm at a stage of life where, you know, I don't have to do everything at the church all the time. So I'm sort of splitting my time between leading Word of Life Church and writing. Right on, right on. Well, um, and as I mentioned the new book that's out, or that's coming out in November, When Everything's on Fire. Um, what a title for today, uh, where we find ourselves. I, I kind of ask every author when they come on, you know, why why this book and why now? Well, here's the, here's the story of the genesis of the book. Um, you may know, I don't know how many people know, that my wife and I have taken up the pilgrim life as much That's as possible. Right. That's the other thing I'm doing a lot. Yes. And uh, in fact, we're just back. We're just back a few days from Scotland where we walked St. Cuthbert's Way, which is a 70-mile pilgrimage from Melrose to the Holy Island of Lindisfarne along the English-Scottish borders. But our big thing is to walk the Camino de Santiago. And this is a if you take the what is considered the more standard route, the Francis route, it begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, and goes all the way to Santiago de Compostela, Spain, 500 miles. And we've walked, this, we've walked the Camino three times, and the last time we did was in uh, 2019. And the Camino, uh, you know, the Camino life, the life of the Peregrino, the pilgrim life, 
is one that if you want it to be, lends itself to great contemplation. You know, your hours and hours you're walking every day. And you can sort of find yourself sliding into a very contemplative mode. And I was thinking about, I don't know, I can't remember. I, I need to look this up. But I think we were somewhere around halfway, roughly halfway, maybe 200 miles in or something like that. I don't know. And um, I, I was I was thinking about how our, our secular age, our, our time here in late modernity is not a friend to sustaining Christian faith, that's for sure. And I was just thinking about how difficult it is to maintain faith because so much is being hurled against Christian faith from all kinds of directions. And I was just thinking about, well, what would I want to say to these people? Because I want to help people continue to have vibrant faith, even in a time and culture and epoch that may be hostile to that. And we arrived at Castro Haris, a village on the Camino. That's where we were staying that night, kind of up on a, on a hilltop, very lovely setting. And I sat on this little terrace. And I outlined the 11 chapters of this book. And I gave it the title, When Everything's on Fire. I mean, I, I just, in fact, in my, I could show it to you, except it's not here, but it's, it's in my journal, When Everything's on Fire. And I had the chapter, and this was, this was my conversation I wanted to have with people to, to try to help them. I didn't start writing the book, though, even though in, in September, or it might have been October of uh 2019, I had the idea and kind of a basic outline of what I wanted to address. I didn't really start working on it until I think January. And then everything soon thereafter was on, on fire. fire. <laughs> so, so, you know, you did think I gave that title. No, I really gave that title because it, it seemed like everything was on fire. And then, oh no, it it's was, on fire now. That's right. It was just kindling. <laughs> Yeah, so that's it. That's anyway. That's how the book was born. We'll yeah. say it that way. That doesn't tell you a lot about it, but that's how it was born. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and you're. And I've never done the Camino. Uh, long to do it, but it, it 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 sounds like the Camino is done to you. You know, more more than you walk the Camino <clears throat> from from what you've. Uh, uh, well, I think my pilgrim self is my best self. Ah. Uh, and if I can bring back some elements of my pilgrim self into my more ordinary life. I think that's a good thing. Again, it's a stage of life thing. Not everybody can just, you know, I mean, I've reached the point now where I'm just trying to find excuses to come up with 40 days so I can go <laughs> walk, you know, 500 miles across Northern Spain, but uh, it's good for my soul. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Yeah. And it's, it's just such a, di- your, your life becomes so simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're carrying everything. I mean, we, you know, everything's carried on my back, you know, or Perry's back. So we're, we're carrying what we, what we need to live for 40 days. And you find out you can live with a lot less than you think you can. People ask me, what do you, what do you take on the Camino? And I use that, well, there's a U2 song, everything that you can't leave behind. <laughs> <laughs> and you find out you can leave more behind because, you know, you got to carry it. Yeah. And so, you know, what clothes do you take? You take two chain, you take, you know, two pairs. I mean, so you don't have to think, what am I going to wear today? You're going to wear what you didn't wear yesterday. Right. <laughs> it just rotates every day. And so your life is simple. Yeah. 
you get up and you walk and you reach your destination and, you know, you wash some clothes and find something to eat, find a place to stay and get up and do it again. And life becomes, and everybody figures out pretty quick. Every pilgrim I've ever met figures out, oh, I get it. This is a metaphor for life. Yeah. And it is. And it gives you a way to kind of evaluate how, how do I want to live? What really is important? What matters? And you find on the Camino, one of the things that matters the most is kindness, because we recognize that we're kind of all doing something that's a little bit hard, kind of demanding. And so we're going to be kind to one another. We're going to help one another. And that's really the ethos. That's very true of the Camino, that if, if you have stopped and you're sitting by the the side of the, the, the way, the Camino, people are going to ask you, are you okay? Do you need something? You got some blisters? Is that your problem? And, and so there is this camaraderie of caring for one another. And, you know, we seek to bring that kind of life back into our, our wider life, our bigger life. So anyway, no. I, I can go on and on about the Beautiful. Camino. But, no. yeah. Beautiful. I love it. Um, you know, uh, you, you begin the book, um, and this has been a word that's become very popular in the last few years within our tradition, deconstruction, right? And you make it very clear um, that it's not so much deconstruction that we should be after, uh, but but the reconstruction, the restoration, uh, bringing forth, you know, uh, the things in our faith that are good, true, and beautiful. Um, and, and, and I love that you wrote, you know, the patience and gentleness of wisdom here is, is really required. Hold my hand, uh, in a, in a world where so many podcasts like mine that I host, the buzzword is deconstruction. And I I think you're bringing a much needed message here that you got to keep going. You can't just stop at deconstruction. You got to keep going. So, so let's start there. Yeah. I mean, I have my own experience with this, um, uh, you know, I, I began, I was, I was a pastor at age 22, really of a church that just kind of accidentally came into being. It came out of a Christian coffee house that I was leading when I was 17. And, um, you know, that's, that's where we began. And, and the church continued to grow and all of that. And things were great. And I was in my 40s and I just began to feel like, that the Christianity I knew was really not worthy of our King. I wasn't having a crisis of faith regarding Jesus. I was having some kind of crisis regarding uh, Christianity. What I mean, it just seemed like it was too weak, too thin, too compromised, too American, too consumerist. And so I went through a profound time of rethinking a lot of my theology and understanding of what it means to be informed by the God revealed in Christ. And so um, I changed, and my preaching changed, and that, that created turmoil because, you know, that's the way that goes in the church. I tell this story in my book, Water to Wine, which that's, that's, that's a metaphor I like. I mean, I like to telling my story that in my mid 40s, I found myself at the party, but the wine had given out <laughs> and it felt like maybe the party was going to be over. But that's when Jesus did his thing and mm. turned the water to wine and saved the best for last. Mm. And so that's one way of talking about that. OK, so that was happening for me like in 2004. That's 17 years ago. I mean, it took you know, it was it was a period of a few years. 
I never used the word deconstruction. I just, I went on a transition. There was a journey, there was a change, there was a transformation, there's all kinds of words I could use. I would not use the word deconstruction. Uh, first of all, I know enough about Jacques Derrida and I understand really where that word comes from and I understand what he means by it in deconstructing the text. And I talk a little bit about that in the second chapter, which is entitled Deconstructing Deconstruction. Yep. But um, I know that's become the in vogue word, so I use it. I use it so people can maybe get a handle of what I'm addressing, but I don't think it's the best term either philosophically or metaphorically. I just don't think it's the best term to use because uh, deconstruction is too closely related to destruction. Hmm. And one of the one of the analogies I I use, I believe it's in the book. It's hard to remember everything you write in your books, but I've used it elsewhere. I think it's in the book too. In fact, I'm sure it is. Uh, imagine that a an icon of Christ is found in some Russian monastery. It's very old. It's very precious. But because of, for whatever reason, neglect or something else, it's become covered with grime and soot and all of that, you know, and, and the image of Christ has almost been obscured from the icon. Well, what do you do? Do you throw it away? Oh, of course not. It's very precious. You're going to have to restore it. Mm. Uh, but the restoration artist that is tasked with bringing this icon back into its glory does not have in her uh, toolkit sledgehammers and dynamite. <laughs> now she, she has brushes and maybe mild solvents and things like that. So I think that when we realize that certain aspects of our Christian faith may have reached the point where they're untenable for whatever reason, I mean, these things happen. This is, this is a, genuine phenomenon. Um, we want to always, though, keep in mind that we are dealing with something delicate and precious. And so let's not be too cavalier. Let's not be reckless. Let's not approach the idea that we just have to tear it all down. Rather, let's, let's be gentle and careful and respectful of, of what we're dealing with. Uh, the other metaphor that I use quite a bit, at least in one part of the book, is I talk about your theological house. Right. You know, I, I had a dramatic encounter with Jesus as a teenager that forever altered the trajectory of my life. But then along the way, you create your theological house. This is what you think and how you talk about God. I mean, you could just say it's your theology, but I want to use this metaphor of a house. And so you have your theological house. I had my theological house. Some of it I constructed myself. Much of it I inherited. Yep. You know, it just it was just there. Yep. Others I kind of it just happened. However, it happens, and sometimes you're not even aware that that's what you're doing. But in midlife, I realized that my theological house was was unworthy of the King to whom it was dedicated. Hmm. And in fact, I'd become embarrassed by it in some ways, mm -hmm. and I didn't want to have people over to my theological house because I was kind of embarrassed by it. And so that's when I realized, okay, we're going to have to remodel. Now, you know, everybody knows a remodel. Here's what you know about remodel. If you're going to remodel your house or have a remodeling project, everybody knows this. It's going to cost more than you think, and it's going to take longer <laughs> than you think. And that's the and same. And more is going to be remodeled than you think. <laughs> there you go. That's exactly what happens. Now, but, but, but our theological house is not a one-room bungalow. Right. It's more like a sprawling mansion. 
yeah. with all kinds of houses and wings and different rooms. And so the whole thing doesn't need to be raised to the ground. Uh, I would say, for example, my Christology was largely untouched. Mm -hmm. and I, think, I think today I can speak more articulately about the doctrine of Christology, that is the study of actually who Christ is, but there was nothing really severely altered about it. On the other hand, uh, I had a whole wing of my theological house called eschatology, the study of the you know, last things. And that would be one example where maybe the word deconstruction would be quite accurate, that we actually did uh, bring in the wrecking ball <laughs> and just bring it down to the foundation and start over because I think it was unsalvageable. But, but I don't think there's that many areas of most Christians' theological house that has to be subjected to that kind of just brutal, you know, taking it down to the very foundation. But so, so that's one way of thinking about it, because what I'm really concerned about is people who have bundled their, their various Christian doctrines so tightly that to, to rethink one thing forces them, or maybe they have to abandon one thing, but they can't, they can't separate it, and they end up feeling like they have to throw everything away. Right. So, for example, people uh, reach the point where they think, ah, oh, I can't believe in a God who operates an eternal torture chamber. Therefore, I can't be a Christian. No, no, you, you, that's an, that would be an example of having bundled things together too tightly. Right. Trust me, believe me, there are ways to rethink judgment. There's ways to rethink what we mean when we talk about hell without having to throw away your entire Christian faith. And people have been doing that for millennia. So, and, and, and one of the things I see in a lot of modern deconstruction stories, because they're very much, you know, in vogue, there, there is, and I want to be careful here, because I am speaking from a pastor's heart, but there is sometimes a, an arrogance in some of mm. this, in that they suddenly, that some seem to think that they have stumbled upon some problem some challenge to the Christian faith that no one has ever thought of before, or at least not until the last, you know, six months. I, I can't really imagine a problem that will create a crisis of faith that the church actually hasn't been addressing in one way or another for centuries. <laughs> and so you're not the first one to come up with this problem. And there are probably a whole army of saints and, and women and men in the faith who have already gone through this and you can have access to some of their wisdom to help you make it through. So these are the kinds of things that I'm, I'm doing in the book and thinking about. That, absolutely. You know, I, I, some of the notes that I wrote down were kind of your move uh, in, into a place of understanding the, the beautiful mystery versus the ironclad certitudes. I think that's how you phrase yeah. it once in the book. Uh, and then you're right, you know, if it's all deconstruction, we end up in a world without Easter. Um, and uh, You can't deconstruct forever and right. have anything left. Right, 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 right. And I think that that's, um, gosh, such a necessary dialogue for all of us to have um, as, as we do mature, as our worldview changes, as we experience different things. You do start asking questions, but I think that, like, 
you know, just having the, I think you wrote too, that your, your theological house was clashing with the beauty of Christ and maybe, maybe just beginning constantly coming back to the beauty of Christ, constantly coming just to steal your language. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus, just to constantly come back to that yeah. over and over. That helps me go, maybe the wallpaper needs to be changed. Maybe we well, just need Jesus to paint. is our foundation. There's right. nothing else is. Uh, yeah, and let me let me come at this because I want to be careful because I did critique a little bit of what I discern as an element of arrogance sometimes. On the other hand, I want to be very clear that people don't just wake up one morning and decide to have a crisis of faith. I mean, there is a challenge that has arisen in the modern era that we have to address. You know, it, it does absolutely no good for someone to say to those that are going through, quote, deconstruction, well, just stop it. Mm-hmm. Well, they can't. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and being angry with modern people for losing their faith is a little bit like being angry at medieval people for dying of the plague. I mean, something has been let loose. Something is happening. And it does us no good to either try to shame it or ignore it. Um, so that's why I'm writing the book. I want to help people through it. I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging that what Nietzsche foresaw, and that is we're coming into the 20th century, and that's when he was writing at the very end of the 19th century. Uh, he understood that we were coming into an epoch where God was dead. Not that God, you know, what we mean, what Nietzsche meant by that is that he had perceived that God was no longer the organizing principle or even an assumed reality within Western culture. And Nietzsche said, okay, I've come a little bit too early, but people will see it. And we've certainly arrived at that day uh, here and now. And so I, I, this is what the whole book is about. I address this in a lot of different ways. But if I was going to say one thing that I think is the most important, and that is that we have to understand that our foundation of faith is Jesus himself and nothing else. Um, Not not the Bible, not uh, apologetic arguments, but rather it is our own subjective experience with Jesus Christ. That is what we know in our heart. Now, in our Post-Enlightenment age, we have been trained not to trust what our heart knows. Mm-hmm. And we've been kicked up inside our head. This is what this is what Descartes accomplishes with Cogito Ergo Sum. I think therefore I am. Yep. Descartes was a was a Christian. In fact, Descartes was even part of what he was trying to do was prove the existence of God, but he wants to do it according to the terms set forth by empiricism. And that's a rigged game. You're going to lose that game every time. And so what he does is he goes up inside his head, doubts everything that he can doubt. He decides, well, I can't doubt that I'm thinking. I think therefore I am. And that becomes his foundation. And so many Christians have decided that the Cartesian foundation of, of individual thought is what we're going to build our faith on. And that is a inadequate foundation. In fact, it is a foundation that, that under the weight of modern empiricism will eventually crumble. Uh, but it was never intended to be our foundation anyway. Our foundation is our own experience with Christ. What Descartes should have done is listen to his contemporary and intellectual equal, Blaise Pascal, one of the greatest mathematicians in history. He certainly had a respect for rational thought, but he also, in his pensee, wrote, the heart has its reasons. 
mm. of which reason knows nothing. And so I believe in Jesus Christ because he has been revealed to me as the son of God. I cannot prove this, but neither can it be disproven. I can only bear witness to it, and it can be believed or disbelieved. That is the kind of foundation that the apostles understood must be the foundation for Christian faith. Any other foundation is uh, a gambit that is dangerous. It's a rigged game, and eventually that foundation will be undermined, quite possibly, somehow or another. So I'm asking people also to come back to to climb down out of their head, up of their attic in the head, come down and sit in the living room of their heart, which the heart is that aspect of our being that is created for the experience of God. See, the, the, the arrogant claim of empiricism is that all that can be known in the phenomenon of being is ascertained through the five physical senses. Well, look, you can learn a lot about the world. There's a lot to be known about the world through the five physical senses. But, excuse me, uh, that is not the only way we experience the phenomenon of being. You cannot, for example, you cannot account for the reality of love from those five physical senses. You end up saying that love really, I mean, Nietzsche will say, no, that's just slave morality. That's what really matters is the will to power. And, um, and, they, and so the masters of suspicion, this is, you know, these philosophers, uh, uh, Freud, Marx, Nietzsche, they're all suspicious of the same thing. They're suspicious of the reality of love. They think it's actually a dodge or a cover for something else. Mm-hmm. Freud's going to say, no, it's all about sex. Mark's going to say, no, it's all about money. Freud says, no, it's all about power. But I think most people know, even if I can't give an empirical account for it, love is real Mm. because I've experienced it. I know what it is to have altruistic love that asks nothing in return. It simply loves. And it it is through that organ, for lack of a better term, of the heart wherein we experience love, that we also have the potential of experiencing God, who John will say is love. Yes, so well said. Um, so maybe maybe for some of the listeners that have uh, maybe moved into that space that they would label deconstruction, or at least maybe now they've been invited to hear reconstruction, restoration. Um, talk to me about that moving from the head into the heart. T- talk to me about... Um, I think that is, there's, there's a lot of work that has to be done. Uh, maybe it's, maybe it's surrender. Maybe surrender is the work that has to be done, but leaving the world of spreadsheets and knowledge, and I've got all my answers moving into the chess space of reflecting on this beauty of Christ and allowing that to be your guide, not the ironclad certitudes, but the beautiful mystery. And let let me, let me clarify, because I don't want any of our listeners to misunderstand where I'm coming from. I have no argument at all with empirical science. Right. I celebrate it all. I'm not the only my own. The only place where I diverge is I say when science has said all it can say, there remains more to be said. And so I tell my church regularly, I said, look, I don't know of any 
peer-reviewed scientific theory that is any threat to my Christian faith. I don't pit uh, faith against science in that way. Yeah. I What I'm saying is, is that you're not going to, if, if you want to experience God, you're not going to find him in a microscope or a telescope or a laboratory. Uh, I'm, I'm for all of that. That's where our, you know, our iPhones and our, this computer I'm using and our whatever, our, our transportation, all that we have that makes modern life so much more livable, we owe that to what's happened during the enlightenment of understanding our material world uh, better. But, our, but, but the phenomenon of being is not limited to the material world. There is that other world, whatever you want to call it, the heavenly realm, the spiritual realm, the realm of the soul. I mean, there's different words, but I think we understand basically what we're talking about. And that's where you're going to not just think about God, but experience God. Right. And so really what I'm talking about, I'm, let's make it very simple. I'm really talking about the realm of prayer. It's interesting how many people go into a deconstruction death spiral, end up losing their faith, who never actually bothered to spend some time praying. They thought themselves into doubt. Mm -hmm. They thought themselves into unbelief. I would invite people to do something as simple as just maybe get outdoors, go somewhere, go to the woods, go to the mountains, go wherever, and then just talk with Jesus. Just say, Jesus, Take a leap to faith in the sense that maybe you've reached the point where you're not even sure if you believe in Jesus. Okay, fine, but just, just on a dare. <laughs> Jesus, I'm not even sure if you're there, but I've been having all of these thoughts. And what I believed, I believe, I don't know if I can believe anymore. And just talk, just, just, just tell Jesus all of that. Just tell it to him, whether it takes five minutes or an hour, just tell him. And then just sit and listen. And see if in the sheer silence, maybe you hear God say something. So that something comes to you. When I say here, you know, it's you, you become aware in that spiritual component of your being of the presence of God communicating something. Uh, that's what I would really, that for all else you're doing, and if you want to call it deconstruction, you're reading, you're learning. You're challenging. Great. I've, I've done all that. I'm fine with that. But don't forget to pray. Hmm. Because prayer is where we have direct engagement with the living God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you have the same experience as I did that once I found the mystics in, in this place of kind of having to re remodel everything, uh, I was like, oh, this thank goodness these people uh, are here. And I know that there that there's a lot of folks that they hear the word mysticism and it, it feels a bit too woo-woo, a bit too new age, but those of us that have taken the dive into, you know, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Meister Eckhart, Thomas Mertens of the world, there is a great, you got to go do your homework a bit. And there, there's some right. folks that can really, really be beneficial in that space. Well, yeah, and, and, and Christian by Christian mysticism, what we mean, we don't mean anything other than a direct experience with God. Right. Okay. So that's what we mean by mysticism, a direct encounter with the divine. And mysticism is not some weird outlier to Christian faith. It's actually very central. I mean, our holy scriptures are produced entirely right. by people who had mystical experiences. Yeah. 
Whether you're talking about Abraham or Moses or David or Elijah or the apostles or all of these people, in one way or another, have a testimony of a direct encounter with the divine. Uh, Christian faith takes it further and says this, in fact, is accessible to everyone. Not you know, not the rare you know prophet or sage, but everyone. And so Karl Rahner, uh, a Catholic theologian. In 1971, he, he made this provocative, I don't know if it's provocative, it's, I would just say, I would call it prescient, a very prescient statement. He said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or nothing at all. Too much of modern American Christianity is an attempt to make Christianity relevant in terms of our mass consumer culture. We already take the terms that have been given to us and say, well, people want to have, you know, a good life and they want to be happy and they want to have good marriages and they want to have, you know, good, happy kids. And so then the pastor is tasked with preaching sermons that are relevant about all of that sort of stuff, things for which the gospel doesn't have any particular unique thing to say. Hmm. Rather, the future of Christianity is not in making it more commercially viable by appealing to what we in consumer culture call relevant, but rather by leaning into that which it is unique about. That is the mystical aspect of it, that we can experience God in Christ. And so uh, I think Rahner was right on. The Christian of the future, and the future is here. He said this in 1971. It's 2021. The future is here. It's, it's arrived. And either our faith is sustained by some kind of uh, real, subjective experience with God, or eventually we'll say, I don't even need it. What, what is it for? It, it, it will become, it'll become so normal. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not finding the right words here. So, so accustomed to just the culture as it is in its secularity that we think it, it doesn't serve any purpose at all. The claims that Christianity make are extreme and they are demanding. Uh, we claim that Jesus Christ is the logos, the word, the idea of the God's own understanding of God's own self, becoming a human person and dwelling among us, dying on the cross that in some way redeems us, being raised again, and now in his ascension is available to everyone everywhere at all times. And that is not the kind of thing that you can not write a nice little sermon about, you know, how to manage your finances. <laughs> uh, but, so we, we need to lean into this the possibility of a, a direct encounter with the risen Christ. Call that mystical, call it right. spiritual, call it whatever you want to call it. But that is what will sustain Christian faith when, when in fact, nothing else will. And it's helpful for me just, just to read your words of the mystical life is the normal Christian life. <laughs> like, that's so very helpful. Sometimes, uh, uh, you know, when you... Uh, introduce some new friends to some of the mystics and things like that. It's a bit well. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not ready for that. And yet, no. Like, no. This is. This has been the juice for two thousand years. This is where it's at. Rock on. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
I want to I want to end in the space of the grace of the second naivete, and uh, I, I I think um, on the other side of use the language of reconstruction restoration, um, I do think that that a world of fresh new eyes, of the surprise and the, and the delight that is the beauty and the mystery of Christ is so, so available that it's like beginner's mind all over again every day. That's the great invitation. It's just constant beginner's mind. Talk If somebody hasn't heard or, or, or hasn't had this dialogue of the second naivete, where do you begin? Well, it comes from Paul Ricoeur. It's a philosophical concept. I speak of it as a kind of grace, and so without really drawing too much more upon Mercure, let me just talk about how I see it at work in my own life, and I'll use a particular example, although it's wider than just this, but it's in how I read the Bible. Now, when I encountered Christ as a teenager way back in 1974, uh, I I just immediately was drawn to the Scriptures. To read the Bible has never been a particular challenge for me. But so I read it probably from age 15 to about early 40s in one way. And I I read it uncritically. I just read it and took at face value what it said. Um, And that's fine. I'm, I'm I'm not here to say that is a wrong way to read scripture, but some people will reach a point where they have a problem. All right, did God, in fact, command genocide? Because that's what the text says there in Joshua and Samuel and other places, Exodus. Uh, How old is, is, if you're going to use the chronologies, you know, as some sort of dating, is is the earth 6,000 years old or is it 14 billion? Or is, is in fact, you know, how so you begin to run into these problems and then maybe that brings you into a period of critical reading analytical reading and you begin to understand how textual criticism works you begin to understand historical jesus research you begin to apply these tools and and that for me was never anything but delightful it was enjoyable it, it didn't threaten my faith i began to see how the bible came to be and what's at work here, and what matters and what doesn't. And it's kind of this critical reading. But you know what? I don't want to do that forever. I've done that. I've done that hard work. I, I, I read the books and did the study for, I don't know how, 15 years. And that always operates in the background. That's there. I can draw upon it when I want to. I can talk about, you know, Deuter Isaiah. I can talk about Isaiah. You know, there's Isaiah of Jerusalem, Isaiah of the Exile, 150 years in between. The Isaiah scroll is, is composed by at least two, maybe three authors at different times. I know all that. And, and that's, and that's, I think, for, I'm not saying everybody has to deal with that, but some people will. The people that sit around and listen to Christian podcasts <laughs> are the kind of people that are going to eventually have to deal with some of that probably. Well, okay, so be it. So then, then you go through that phase. But I don't want to stay there forever. And then at some point you return to a simpler reading where you say, okay, I know all that, but I just I want to read the stories. I, I want to inhabit a world where giants are killed by slingshots, where Red Seas part, where the walls of defiant 
enemies collapse at the shout of praise, that sort of thing. And you don't have to literalize it, but you understand that that speaks constantly to the hopes that I have and to how I'm trying to believe and what I'm looking for. And I, and I find myself in impossible situations. Can God, yes, God can move in our world and seize part and giants are slain and walls fall down. And I allow the scriptures to once again enchant me mm-hmm. and bring me into this mystical, magical, supernatural world where God is constantly engaged and constantly active in surprising ways, not ways that we can control and manipulate and own, but God is present, always surprising us. So I don't know if that's a, if that's a thoroughly adequate description of what I'm talking about, but, it, but you see, there's that arc there. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and you know, when I read, I guess my, my one bit of counsel is don't get stuck forever in the uh, historical critical reading of the Bible. It, it has its place, but if you if you get stuck there, the Bible eventually becomes an exhausted, lifeless text. Hmm. Having done that work, then ask, keep it in chance, maybe attempt to read the Bible in again a more mystical enchanted way. One of the things, one of the ways I did that, one of the ways, because I had read, you know, I, w- I was always reading different translations, but they were the, the, you know, the latest modern translations. I went back and for a while read King James. And I understand, you know, King James doesn't draw upon the oldest manuscripts and it's not the best, most accurate translation. But what King James does is, first of all, it is beautiful. I've forgotten how beautiful it is. It's beautiful. And because it's using language that's a bit archaic, you know, we have our Elizabethan thee and thou and all of that sort of thing. Uh, it also reminded me that this is a this is a text of antiquity that is also inviting me into another world. Hmm. And so I don't know if that would work for anybody else, but for me, it actually helped to do that. And I began, I found myself reading with the grace of second naivete aided by this beautiful, poetic, old language. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think that was one of the biggest gifts I got from your sinners in the hands of a loving God. You know, just even the idea of timeout when, when we speak of the wrath of God, what if, what if mm-hmm. what if we approach that from the lens of going against the grain of love Ta- yes. I mean, that that you you granted me such a beautiful gift in that language uh, and and that has that has created buckets of grace in my life for that you know, makes me happy Ashton. yeah that makes yeah. me happy yeah so I'm super grateful uh, for your voice and that work because it has helped me navigate the waters um, of this second naivete Um before we go, your 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 new mission to make Christianity possible for your grandchildren and their generation. Talk, talk, talk to me about that. Yeah, I have eight grandchildren, ages eleven to one, and they're from. I have three sons. the The youngest son just got married in August, and he and his wife have no children yet. But my older two sons married, and they have for each, and they live, uh, they live a mile from here. You know, I could be there in two minutes. Uh, they live a mile from here and across the street from one another. And so I, I'm 
you know, I have grandchildren around me all the time. I'm fortunate. I realize that that's not necessarily common in our modern world, but my grandchildren become for me sort of a personification of who I want to help. And I think, okay, I want Christianity be, to be possible for Jude and Finn and Evie and Liam, Mercy, Hope, Pax and Honor. I want I want Christianity to be possible for them as they come into their teens and 20s. And so that becomes my mission statement. How can I do that? And I recognize that much of the wider culture will not be conducive to sustaining Christian faith. So be it. I'm not asking for that. I'm not fighting any kind of culture war. Uh, But it means that Christian faith needs to be made normative in their life through church and through family. And so when my grandchildren are around me, I talk about God, but not in an unnatural way. I don't force any conversation. I just make it part of normal life. We pray together, but it's not forced. It's just part of, you know, we, we watch the football game together because my oldest grandson is, he, he, he got the sports gene from his grandpa, I think. And we love to watch the sports and all of that. And uh, so we'll watch a game together, but then we can pray together. And it's, it's just, it's normal. Um, I, I think, you know, if I were to, if I were to predict, and Niles Bohr says prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> I would say that, that the, the future of Christianity in North America is diminished, humbled, chastened. It's going to be smaller. And you're going to have to be willing. I mean, one of the many, many problems of the culture wars is it's a war that Christians that are fighting it in the way they're fighting it are going to lose. It's just a matter of time. You're going to, hey, Christian culture warrior, spoiler alert, you're going to lose that war. (laughs) And then what happens? So, no, just just go ahead and don't even fight the war. You don't have to change the world. Simply just be the world is already changed by Christ and be willing to be a little bit weird, a little bit odd a little bit out of step, be willing to be countercultural because guess what? Christianity is always countercultural. And if you say, no, I can't be a Christian unless the culture is lined up with it. Well, that, what kind of Christian is that? That's not a Christian. That's, that's, that's a Christendomite. Right. <laughs> I just, I've never used that word before. That was the first time I've conjured <laughs> that one up. So, uh, if Christianity is going to be possible, and it will be, but if it's, but for it to be possible, uh, the adherents that confess that Jesus is Lord are going to have to be willing to be uh, odd, viewed as odd, maybe not odd, but viewed as odd, different, and uh, countercultural. Yep, yep, yep. And Which maybe describes the early church, doesn't it? It sure does. Amen? That's right. And uh, you know, let's allow the good news to actually be good news. You know, yes, because um, it's often been bad news for a lot of mm. folks. Um, right. And kind of riffing off one of your last sermons, right? You can't change the world, but you can change yourself. You're listening to me. Ashton. I'm, I'm listening goodness. to you. I'm in. I'm in. You can't change the world, but you can change yourself. And as you said it, that's how you change the world. Yeah. You just can't. You you, you have to let change in the world. You have to tell yourself, I can't change the world. Mm-hmm. That's ego. You just, if, you get, if you say my goal or if the church says our goal is to change the world, then you will always succumb to the temptation to reach for Sauron's ring or Caesar's sword. Hmm. So you have to say, no, nope, it's not my job to change the world. 
It's my job. Nothing. My only job is to be the world is already changed by Christ to allow Christ to change me. Now, the secret is that is how the world has changed. But don't say it too loud or else the spell is broken and you'll be out trying to change the world again. <laughs> just just let Jesus be in charge of changing the world and you embody the change that he affects in your own life. Mm, well said. November 9th, when everything's on fire, is going to come out. Um, again, I know I've said it already, Brian, but super grateful for you and your work and your energy in the world. It's been a gift. Um, the light that you have absorbed from the divine, I can tell you that I have absorbed, and hopefully we're entrusting this community here um, with it. We, we kind of have a bit of a new practice here that's a little bit different, but some people like yourself, I've asked, you know, if you would leave us in some form of benediction, some type sure. of good word, uh, the floor is yours. Lord, I pray for those that are hearing this podcast at this moment. We share this moment, no matter how separated in various aspects of time, this moment is shared. And we inhabit this together in your name. And Jesus, you said that when we gather in your name, that you're there. So inhabit this moment with us. And I pray that you would bring to those that are in this moment with me what it is they need, the grace, the peace, the word of encouragement, the strength to endure. Lord, bring that to them in this moment. Let them know of your nearness. Let them know of your love. Let them know of your faithfulness that even when we struggle, even when we doubt, even when we fail, that you remain faithful, for your name is faithful and true. Lord, encourage each hearer of this podcast, of this moment, with your presence in a way that is uniquely suited to what they need in this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.